0: Welcome to the Ancient Spiritual Wisdom Podcast where we learn from highly evolved beings about the path of enlightenment, self-realization and divine love along with practical ways to integrate those teachings into our daily life. Today we're going to be reading from Chapter 3 of the Bhagavad Gita. Thank you for being here. There's going to be a lot to learn. You'll find the earlier chapters on YouTube's Spiritual Wisdom channel. Please feel free to go there and check out the introduction to the Gita, where we talked about the Mahabharata and gave a synopsis of the background of the Gita, the battle of Kurukshetra, and the setting in which the Gita was spoken 5,000 years ago. And After that, we went on to Chapter 2, where we discussed the qualities of the soul And then we finally went on to talking about the path of enlightenment. And today we're going to Chapter 3. It's an ambitious project, so I'm going to go pretty fast. And uh, we'll try to explain it to you as we go along. Uh, At the end of this, I will be asking for questions. I would love to hear your views. You can write it down in the comments and I'll deal with it as soon as I'm done. All right, let's get started. Freedom from Karma Karma, what is it? Let's begin by understanding that. A lot of people have opinions, a lot of people have questions, and so we'll lay down the basics first. Karma is actually actions performed for one's self-interest, for oneself, the things you do, which might be considered normal, and everyone is engaged in that. We're all engaged in actions, and these actions have consequences. Every action has a consequence with equal and opposite reaction, which means that what was done by you will be done to you. It's a simple way of putting it. What was done by you will be done to you. Okay. So if that action that you did was to benefit someone, then that kind of action will come back to you. That is called good karma. And when you've done action that has been to hurt someone, then that shall be done to you too. And that is something that will happen as a law for everyone. Karmic actions are considered like seeds that fructify over time. Seeds of karma can fructify in the present moment. Seeds of karma can fructify at a later time. And seeds of karma can fructify even in a different lifetime. There is no time frame that you can predict karma. I've known people who have been hurt by somebody, been betrayed, felt horrible. They went through hell and they felt that this is so unfair. When is this person going to get the karma? Why, why isn't it happening? Why isn't it happening? And the fact is that it happens when it happens. We don't have a control over that. The reactions to that person's actions will fructify like a seed in due time. Some seeds will blossom very quickly into plants or grasses or whatever they might be. And some, say, a mango tree might take many years before they bear fruit. So it's the same way. During the time when that karmic reaction is being experienced, the roles will be reversed. What that person did to another will now be done to them. And it could be worse, it could be a little lighter, it depends. And so that reaction will be there. And it will be equal and opposite. But it will have the impact. So that's why the fructification must come at the right time. Otherwise it's of no value. And you may ask, why does it happen? Why is this happening to me? It is to develop a greater awareness of our actions, the effect that they have on others, the consequence that they have on others. For us to see the mirror, so to speak. And for us to develop empathy and compassion for those who we might be either doing good or bad to, whom we might be hurting or we might be serving. So karma is not designed as a punishment. This is a very important distinction to make. It is not designed to punish anyone. And if we are at some point experiencing negative actions happening in our life, It is as important for us to learn to deal with those as it is to deal with the good times and the good actions. Because that is the negative karma coming back to us. Becoming equipoised both in the good and the bad times is a huge part of our human journey. Not just looking for the good things to happen. Why do bad things happen to good people? It doesn't mean because someone is good now that they weren't bad at some other time. It means just because you're now a kind, loving, sweet person doesn't mean at some point in your past, maybe your past lives, that you weren't hurtful to others. It doesn't mean that. You may have gone through that. You may have changed now. And that's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't mean the karma is not going to come back. It'll still come back. How you navigate it is going to make all the difference. Will you get resentful again? Will you then go out and hurt those people again? Or will you respond from a place of kindness and compassion and love? Will you have the wisdom to have outgrown those behaviors? That's what's going to be seen. Let's take a look at this karmic cycle. Before you come into this earth, there is a karmic bank balance that you have accumulated over many lifetimes. When you come into this earth, that karmic bank balance will determine the purpose of your present birth. That is the Prada. That will determine the gifts you'll have, the family you'll be born in, the country you'll be born in. All of that is connected to what you've come into this present birth to deal with. Then you have agama, which is now your unfulfilled desire being carried over from many lifetimes. That's what you're going to try to work to fulfill in this life. Perhaps you were poor at some time and now you've found a way to develop wealth and now you're going to try to accumulate that. How will you deal with that? What new karma will you generate? That is what's going to be seen. That new karma, either good or bad, is going to then add up into your karmic bank balance. And thus the cycle of birth and death goes on. Having good karma does not free you from the cycle of birth and death, neither does bad karma. Both of them entangle you in this world. We're going to explore today the path that will take us away from the karmic cycle. The path away from the karmic cycle is the one that most spiritual people seek and want to know more about. The karmic cycle keeps us trapped. In the cycle of birth and death The idea is how do we get free Of that cycle of birth and death How can we liberate ourselves from that So the Bhagavad Gita begins By answering some of these very pertinent questions Krishna says The bewildered spirit soul That's all of us All of us are bewildered by this world We're captivated by it We are enamored by all the things That we can have and do and be all that we can achieve and become in this life. So we are bewildered by this fascinating array of possibilities here. The bewildered spirit soul under the influence of the three modes of material nature. Krishna has described those three modes of material nature before as sattvagun, which is the mode of goodness, rajogun, the mode of passion, and tamagun, the mode of ignorance. We will be going into that in great detail. But just for now, let's say under the influence of this world, or in the influence of the Forces that act upon us in this world, and for more practical day to day understanding, that might be the forces of society, the forces of religion, the forces of our media, our politicians, or whatever. We are influenced by all of that stuff in our environment, including our peers and our friends, and all of that stuff. So, the bewildered spirit soul, under the influence of the three modes of material nature, thinks himself to be the doer of activities which are in actuality carried out by nature. We think we are doing so much. We think we are the doer of activities. We think that we are achieving. We think that we are acquiring. We think that we are becoming. But Krishna is saying here that you think you're the doer of activities, but your doing is actually being carried out by nature. Now, it doesn't mean, as some might think, that everything is being done by God, or everything is being done by nature, or that I'm just a puppet on a string. Not at all. Not at all. There are forces that are acting on us. That forces could be the forces of good or evil, the forces of family, society, country. Whatever those forces are, they are part of nature, and we are grappling with that. How we interact with that is going to make all the difference. It is not about what happens to us, but it is how we deal with what happens to us, how we respond to what happens to us, that makes all the difference in our maturity, in our evolution as a spiritual human being and as a person who is aspiring towards self-realization. Krishna continues, Bewildered by the modes of material nature, the ignorant fully engage themselves in material activities and become attached. What do they get attached to? They get attached to the things they're doing. They can get attached to the things they have. They can get attached to the people they're with. Attachment happens. Whatever it is that you're doing, attachment happens. And that then causes you to either do more or to struggle or to fight or to strive. In some way, it pushes you deeper into the world. Attraction and repulsion for sense objects are felt by embodied beings, but one should not fall under the control of senses and sense objects because they are stumbling blocks on the path of self-realization. So let's read that carefully. Attraction and repulsion for sense objects are felt by embodied beings. Right? We all feel that. But one should not fall under the control of the senses and sense objects because they are stumbling blocks on the path of self-realization. You're going to find here in this chapter, Krishna is going to be talking a lot about practical things in life. And the practical things in life are the very things that keep us on this treadmill of desire, the treadmill of wanting more and more, the treadmill of why we work and do what we do, And why we often ignore our spiritual path. So, attraction and repulsion for sense objects. This is at the heart of it all. Advertisers know it, so they get us attracted to things. That's why we work. We work so that we can earn the money to have the things we want to have. We have our desires. And because we have these desires, we strive, we try to do our best. We try to achieve, we measure each other by our achievements, by what we have earned, by what we have got, with the properties we have, whether you're a billionaire or a multi-billionaire or whatever it might be, we see our worth through our desires. Our desires run our life. We are like that hamster on a treadmill, chasing those desires. One who is in knowledge of the absolute truth does not engage in sense gratification, knowing well the difference between karmic work and karma yoga. So karmic work is where I'm working for the pleasure of my senses. What does that really come down to? It's not even the senses. The senses, poor things, they're very neutral. The eyes, they see. The ears, they hear. The senses are not actually the culprit. It is the ego that is the culprit. The ego that is behind the senses, that is driving us. Why is the ego the culprit? Because the ego wants to prove that it has worth, it has value, it is significant, that it matters. These are the things that the ego wants. And these are the things we're all chasing. We're chasing all the stuff of the world, which our senses are attracted to because our ego is the slave driver, driving us to try to prove something that cannot be proven because in fact it is false. Therefore we call it the false ego. The real ego, the real self, is actually the soul. And so the purpose is to not buy into what the egoic mind or the false ego is trying to tell us. That is the difference between karmic work. Karmic work is where you are there trying to appease the ego. You are working for the ego. And karma yoga, where your work, your karma, your actions, become a pathway to the divine or to God. They become a way to become connected to God. That is where the difference arises. Whether you are working for the ego or you are working for the divine. That is at the heart of what we are discussing today as karma yoga. So the question now arises, if work entangles us in karma and if doing stuff should we therefore work or not work? What is better? Maybe it's better to do nothing. If I do nothing, if I do no work, if I take no action, there will be no reaction. I'll be free from the cycle of birth and death. Theoretically, that might sound like a plausible idea, but it doesn't actually work. How about if I become a monk and stop working for any self-interest and I just become part of some monastery and I start devoting my life to that, will that make me free of the influence of karma? Because being caught up in karma means being caught up in the cycle of birth and death. So how do I become free of it? And that would be an extremely valid question to ask ourselves. How do we become free? So Krishna says, Not by merely abstaining from work can one achieve freedom from karma, nor by renunciation alone can one attain perfection or liberation. So notice both the things. He's cutting off all possibilities here. Not by merely abstaining from work can one achieve freedom from karma, nor by renunciation alone can one attain perfection or liberation. So you say, but what else can I do? Everyone is forced to act helplessly according to the impulses born of the modes of material nature. Therefore, no one can refrain from doing something, even for a moment. One who restrains the senses and organs of action, but whose mind dwells on sense objects, certainly deludes himself, and is called a pretender. So someone, for example, who, let's say, has left the world, gone and joined an ashram or a monastery and become a monk and renounced everything, but their mind dwells in the world. For the service of what they're doing in the monastery, they want to have a nice car, they want to have a nice room, they want to decorate everything very nicely. What is the purpose behind that, by the way? Is it to be able to prove yourself a significant person, an achieved and evolved, a great soul, a saintly person? If so, then it is being driven by the ego. (laughs) Back again, you've given up everything, you've supposedly renounced everything, you've supposedly restrained your senses and organs of action, but your mind is dwelling on sense objects. Such a person certainly deludes themselves and is called a pretender. There have been many such pretenders who've gone around in the name of being spiritual gurus and teachers and monks and sannyasis. And they've proven over time they were extremely attached to the world. The point here is not that the world is bad, nor the sense is bad, nor is even desire bad but it is learning the correct use of these things. These are natural things. We all have desires. We all have senses. We all want and need things. But what is the correct use of this world? How do you get free from karma? That's what we're trying to understand. So Krishna continues saying, one who controls the senses by the mind but engages these active organs in karma yoga without attachment is by far superior. Perform your prescribed duty, for action is better than inaction. One cannot even maintain their physical body without work. What is our prescribed duty? Actually, most of us don't even know. We are so caught up. We could be in a job, we could be in a business, we could be in whatever and doing what needs to be done. And yes, true, that would be your prescribed duty. You'd be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Then some of us become very dissatisfied in what we're doing, and we seek something more. Usually that's because we got into something, perhaps under the pressure of family or society or friends, and we didn't quite go on the path that was our true and natural calling. When Krishna talks about prescribed duty, he talks about work that is done in alignment with your true nature. Your true nature means that you have certain gifts that you were born with. You have certain aptitude that you have. He talks about the Varnashram system later on in the Gita. And he talks about guna and karma, your qualities and your aptitude. That should determine the kind of work that you do. If you are engaged in work that is aligned with your qualities and your aptitude, then that is your prescribed duty. That is what you've come here to do. That is your life purpose. That is your life work. So do it, but with a certain quality. And that quality that he talks about is being able to perform your duty without attachment to the result. So he's going to talk about that now. And before he comes to that point, we're going to take a look at what the beginning of this world was. This, he talks about how in the beginning of creation, when this earth was being populated, This universe was being populated by all kinds of beings. Some were human beings and some were demigods or devas, devtas. At that time, he says, In the beginning of creation, the Lord of all creatures sent forth generations of men and demigods and blessed them, saying, Be thou happy by this sacrifice, because its performance will bestow upon you all desirable things." The demigods being pleased by sacrifices will supply all necessities to man and thus nourishing one another they will remain general prosperity for all. A person who does not follow this prescribed Vedic system of sacrifice will become entangled in karma for a person delighting only in the senses lives in vain. So he's talking about the importance of sacrifice. Now this has been there in all traditions throughout the world. We all sacrifice something. If you live only for yourself there develops in us a quality of selfishness and a quality of egotisticalness. People who have had children, have a family, pay taxes, might experience some sense of release from selfishness. In different ways, we are encouraged to do something for the community, for society, to help others. And as we do that, we learn to let go of some of the fruits of our work. We learn to sacrifice something. That sacrifice is very important. And that's what Krishna is alluding to out here, that the universe was created with different demigods in charge and we were meant to sacrifice something to them. But then he continues here that the ultimate sacrifice is the sacrifice of one's work as an offering to the Supreme. So he says here, work done as a sacrifice for Vishnu has to be performed. Vishnu means the Supreme Being or God, Krishna in this case. Otherwise, work binds one to this world. Therefore, perform your prescribed duties for His satisfaction. In That way you will remain unattached and free from bondage. So we're learning now the first and most important key to becoming free from bondage. And that is to be able to perform the work we do as an offering to the divine, to God. If you call God as the universe, so be it. If you call God by any other name, Shakespeare said this very eloquently, he said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So it is with God. You could call God the universe, the force, the light, or you could call God by a personal name, whether that name be Allah, Jehovah, or whether that name be Krishna or Vishnu. That is entirely up to you to understand which aspect of God it is that you wish to touch upon. We'll go more into that topic another time, but right now let's take a look at how to become free of karma. This next verse is the most famous verse of the Bhagavad Gita. In fact, a lot of people think it's the only verse that matters. But in fact, there is a lot more to the Gita than this verse. However, it is an extremely important one. This is chapter 2, text number 47, where Krishna says, How do you come to the place that is beyond karma or non-karma, where there is no more karma? How do you get to that place? He says, you have a right to perform your prescribed duty but you are not entitled to the fruits of action. Never consider yourself to be the cause of the results of your activities and never be attached to not doing your duty. He says you are right to perform your prescribed duty, but you are not entitled to the fruits of action. We all work for the fruits of action. What kind of thing is this? What are you talking about, Krishna? You are not entitled to the fruits of action. As human beings... This is what we pride ourselves with. I've achieved so much. I've done so much. This is what I have accumulated. This is my wealth. These are my assets. These are my belongings. This is my beautiful home. And we look to those who have achieved something and we say, oh, I'd love to have what this person has. And yet Krishna is saying, you are not entitled to the fruits of action. Why? This is such an important point to understand. Because, in fact, the reality is that nothing belongs to any of us. You came here empty-handed, you will leave here empty-handed, and that is the bottom line. Whatever we have is given to us for a short period of time to use. Who does it belong to? It belongs to the one who created all of this all the rest of us trying to lay claim on things, claim on land, claim on houses, claim on property, whatever it is we're laying claim on. No. You must recognize that that land you have, that property you have, those possessions you have, they all belong to that source of everything or God. They always belonged to God. They always will belong to God. They are just in your care. While they are in your care, you are most welcome to use them, but give thanks, be grateful to the source, offer sacrifice, in some way contribute something towards God from whom all of this has come to you. So you are not entitled to the fruits of action. In other words, not entitled to thinking that this is mine. Mine is the cause of suffering, the thought that this is mine. My husband, my wife, my children, my house, my car, my bank balance. This is the cause of our suffering. As long as we think in terms of this is mine, we have become attached to the fruits of action. Therefore Krishna cautions us here by saying, Never consider yourself to be the cause of the results of your activities and never be attached to not doing your duty. So do what has to be done. But this life was given to you, not just the possessions that you have, but this body, this life, this breath, this heartbeat, all of it. I do not make my heart beat, neither do you. I do not make my lungs move and breathe, neither do you. How is it happening? Why is it happening? We do not know, but it is happening and this much is true. Perform your duty, abandoning all attachment to success or failure. Such evenness of mind is called karma yoga. In other words, do what you've got to do. Do it with a passion. Do it with zeal. Do it with full enthusiasm. But don't be attached to success or failure. Give it your all. Whatever it is you're doing, give it your all. Because you're doing it as an offering to the divine. That is the place to do it from not because you will become so rich or you will become so famous or that you will accumulate so much money. No, I'm doing this as an offering to the divine and to God and through that to all humanity. In that way, you stay free from karma. One who is engaged in karma yoga becomes free from good and bad karma, even in this life. Therefore, strive for yoga, which is the art of all work. One who is engaged in karma yoga becomes free from good and bad karma, even in this life. Therefore, strive for yoga, which is the art of all work. Good karma yields a good life, either this life or next. People who engage in good deeds are good to others, reap the fruits of that in the form of a good life, a peaceful life, a happy life, a content life. And that may elevate them into wealth and riches or higher planets, as they're called in the Vedas, bad karma has the opposite effect, leading you to, let's say, a jail, leading you to places of suffering within your mind, or perhaps lower planets, as the Vedas talk about. Whether you engage in good karma or bad karma, doesn't matter. All of these situations within this world, whether you go to a higher planet or a lower planet, whether you're rich or you're poor, ultimately... Everyone experiences the same things, birth, death, old age and disease. That is the consequence of being here. Karma, whether good or bad, keeps you here. So the idea is to become free from karma, a karma, the opposite of karma, -karma. non-karma. Non-karma is what we want to actually come to. That is what Krishna is referring to here as yoga, or the art of all work. The wise engaged in yoga free themselves from the cycle of birth and death by renouncing the fruits of action in the material world. In this way, they can attain that state beyond all miseries. Now, let's take a look at this very practically. What does it mean to renounce the fruits of action in the world? It doesn't mean to leave everything behind, because if nothing is yours, there is nothing you can leave. If nothing belongs to anyone, there is nothing you can give up. Nothing was ever yours in the first place, so there is nothing to give up. Have it all and yet be detached from it. Recognize that all of it is a gift from God and live in gratitude for that. Share that to the best of your ability with those who you can share it with. Allow others to be able to experience the abundance that may have come to you. Be generous, be kind, be compassionate. These are the qualities. To recognize that none of this is mine, to not be attached to any of it, then you will attain that state beyond all miseries. It's very practical. If you have any questions about that, please feel free to ask me. Then Krishna sums it up by saying, Surrendering all your works to me with mind intent on me, without desire for gain, freedom, From egoism and lethargy, perform your duty. This is the key lesson. Surrendering all your works unto me with mind intent on me. Let me give you a comparison here. When a soldier goes to battle, the soldier kills many people. The soldier is not implicated in that killing unless they do something they were not supposed to do. The soldier is not punished for that act of killing by the government because they have acted on behalf of the government. That same soldier, when they come back in peacetime, they kill even one person, they would go to jail for it. If they engage in any act, even on the battlefield, that was against the rules of battle, they'd go to jail for it. The idea is that by surrendering all that you do to God, you become free from karma, from any reaction, positive or negative. You do what you do, as an offering to the Divine. And that keeps you free. One who executes his duty according to my injunctions, who follows this teaching faithfully, will become free from the bondage of karma. So It's very simple to understand. It's not some complicated thing. But what are the qualities of a karma yogi? How do you know that you're actually there? And so that's the next thing Krishna talks about. One who is taking pleasure in the self, who is illuminated in the self, who rejoices and is satisfied with the self only, who is fully satiated, for such a person there is no duty. A self-realized person has no purpose to fulfill in the discharge of prescribed duties, nor any reason not to perform such work, nor any need to depend on any other living being. Therefore, without being attached to the fruits of activities, one should act as a matter of duty, for by working without attachment, one attains the supreme. You begin to realize that becoming a self-realized person can occur right here in this world with everything you have with all the wealth, with all the riches, with your house, your car, your bank balance, your family. You don't have to give up anything. But it's simply to recognize the source and to live with a sense of sacrifice of what you have towards that source. Surrender. That is the heart of the matter. Such a person then is illuminated in the self. You realize my real wealth is not the stuff I have. My real wealth is the stuff that lies within me. I, my soul, my essence is the real wealth. This is my greatest asset. And along with that, my connection with Source or God is my true wealth. My greatest wealth is God. So you recognize that that is the eternal wealth, that is the eternal possession, that is the eternal asset that you have. Everything else is temporary. Then Krishna goes on to say, Whatever action is performed by a great person, common people follow in his footsteps. And whatever standards he sets by exemplary acts, all the world pursues. He says, There is no work prescribed for me within all the planetary systems, nor am I in want of anything, nor have I any need to obtain anything. And yet I am engaged in work. For if I did not engage in work, certainly everyone would follow my path. All these worlds would be put into ruination. I would thereby destroy the peace of all sentient beings. That is the essence of karma yoga. Now, what stops us from doing this? I'm sure you've had some doubts, you've had some questions, and there may be some things coming up in your mind. So let's explore what are some of the obstacles to following this path. Arjun's asking, why is one impelled to bad karma, even unwillingly, as if engaged by force? <laughs> A lot of people are, just so that they can make ends meet, so that they can achieve their goal. They'll do whatever it takes, especially when the stakes are high. You'll do whatever it takes to be able to achieve that goal. So Arjun's saying, why does this happen? And Krishna boils it down to one thing. He says, it is karma which refers to desire or lust, born out of contact with the mode of passion and later transformed into wrath, which is the all-devouring sinful enemy of the world. So, In other words, our desire to have things, to achieve things, to be things, to do things, is at the heart of why we will sometimes engage in whatever it takes to get that desire, no matter if that is something that is hurtful to others, whether that is something that is going to cause damage, break the law, we'll still do it, just so that we can get what we want. As fire is covered by smoke, as a mirror is covered by dust, or as the embryo is covered by the womb, similarly the living entity is covered by different degrees of this lust or desire or calm. Thus a person's pure consciousness is covered by his eternal enemy in the form of lust, which is never satisfied and which burns like fire. So please understand that lust here is not just referring to sexual lust. It is referring to lust for the stuff of this world. It is the desire to exploit the world. It is the desire to have, to own, to possess. That is at the heart of this lust. I want to enjoy, I want to exploit. It is this exploitative nature. You'll see it in most capitalistic and communistic societies as well. The senses, the mind, and the intelligence are the sitting place of this calm or desire, which veils the real knowledge, of the living entity, and bewilders him. So in our mind, this is where it sits, right here. And that is why that meditation is required to become free from the mind and to sharpen our intelligence. Therefore, in the very beginning, curb desire by regulating the senses and slay this destroyer of knowledge and self-realization. Working senses are superior to dull matter, mind is higher than the senses, intelligence is still higher than the mind, and the soul is even higher than intelligence. Thus, knowing oneself to be transcendental to material senses, mind and intelligence, one should control the lower self by the higher self, and thus by spiritual strength, conquer this insatiable enemy, calm or desire or lust. So in conclusion, I would present to you a very simple formula. Freedom from karma is equal to freedom from karma. Notice the two words, karma and karma. The only difference is the letter R in the middle. Freedom from karma comes from freedom from karma. I'd like to open things up for discussion. Whatever questions you have, you're most welcome now. And I'd love to hear from you.
1: I have one. Okay. So when this was written, I don't know much about the history mm-hmm. of this culture, but I think when this was written, prescribed duty was a caste system.
0: Yes, there was no caste system as we know of it today. Okay, That was not the case. What was there, what Krishna talks about in the Bhagavad Gita, is not a caste system, but rather a system in which society engaged in different activities based on one's actions and one's aptitude. Okay, two things, actions and aptitude. So you may have the aptitude for something, but you don't act on it. That doesn't qualify you for a particular job. But if you have the aptitude and you're willing to act on that, then you have the correct qualification for that job.
1: Okay, because that, that was my ultimate question, was how do right. you know you're prescribed duty? But that's
0: yes. how you know. my general way of knowing that is that this is an activity you would do, whether you succeeded in it or failed in it, whether it was something that gave you the necessary results or didn't, you would just do it because this is who you are. If you're a musician, or if you're a writer, you would just persevere at that. And maybe you get somewhere and maybe you don't. If you look at artists like Vincent van Gogh, or you look at some of the other artists of that time, you look at many of the most famous writers, They did what they did because that's what their passion was. That was their thing in life. That was the gift they had. Some of them became very successful doing it. Others did not. If you're in business and that's been your passion all along, you'll know you've had a calling to that all your life. You'll know that's been in your heart. And that's, you at a very young age. I had in me things that I did not even recognize until way later on in life because they were so natural sitting and talking to people about their issues, helping them with stuff. I didn't even think there was a profession. I just thought that was just something I do. But it was only back in literally into my 40s that I began to wake up and realize I'm not satisfied with anything I'm doing. I was trying to be an entrepreneur. I was trying to be many different things. But none of that was working out for me. And it was only when I began to follow my prescribed duty, as Krishna calls it here, which is my true calling, that everything began to flow effortlessly. It doesn't mean the initial periods weren't hard. Of course they were. But it was easy to persevere because it was natural. It came easily. It was deeply baked into who I am. And I'm sure it's the same for all of us who have tried to find our path in this world. Does that answer your question?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Thank you. Okay,
0: good. Thanks. I'm sure it's not easy to do what Krishna is talking about. Or maybe it is for you. I don't know. Mariah, what are your thoughts? How would you deal with some of the points Krishna is bringing up here?
1: First off, I thought it was pretty amazing how you tied in (laughs) both chapters.
0: Yeah, I've actually brought in parts of chapter two and parts of chapter three.
1: I've been thinking so much about it lately. I think that it's so critical to surrender to the divine and to your highest self. And I think that when you do that, you are very like, in a state of non-karma. Yeah. And so for me, it gets down to surrender again. But I do think that the whole talk about karma and just the trap of attachment and that our fruits aren't ours, they're God's. The yeah. fruits of our work aren't ours, they're right. God's. And we have to remember that. So yeah, I that's what I thought.
0: Exactly. We become attached to the fruits of our work and we think that this is mine, But remember this, whatever you think of as yours, whatever you think of as mine, will be the cause of suffering for you. It will be the cause of attachment, it will be the cause of suffering. In other words, whatever you have, you don't have to give it up. You simply have to offer it to God and say, this is yours. Thank you so much for having given me all this. Show me how I can use this in your service. How can I best make use of this story? Body, this mind, these possessions, how can I best use them for you? And so you begin to start making that as an offering, a sacrifice, as he's saying, where you start letting go your attachments instead of holding on to them. Anyone else have a question? Honey is a
2: confused soul. She's just trying to learn.
0: (laughs) Okay, but even as a learner, you may have some questions.
2: Yeah, of course, practicing any of this Hard detachment, uh, is so hard. I know, I understand what karma is, and not to worry about the truth of so what you do. But all of this is so hard to do. Mm. And sometimes I think like, and I think you answered that as well. But I mean, if you don't think then that's wrong. But then you're supposed to things. If you don't do something, you hmm. don't do what you're supposed to do. Then that is wrong.
0: Hold on. What is wrong? Why is it wrong?
2: If we don't do it, whatever dharma we want to do, or whatever work we are supposed to do in our lives, whether it's whether it's feeding our kids, or teaching them, teaching them any good manners, or raising them the way we think is right. If we don't do
0: those things, then that is wrong. It's not about right and wrong, Shalini. It's that you will have the consequences of that. If you don't raise your kids right, there's going to be a consequence to that, long term, for them, for you. If you don't follow your dharma, you're going to feel a sense of dissatisfaction within you. If your dharma was to raise kids and you're doing that, you'll feel perfectly satisfied. But if you feel that there is something more you're meant to be doing in life and you feel dissatisfied, then it's important to find out what is that and come to that. You're not doing it because it's the right thing to do. It is what puts you in alignment with life and why you're here. It gives you the peace and satisfaction and contentment of a life well lived. If you want that experience, then do this. There is no right or wrong. Right or wrong is simply a dualistic notion that is set up by our mind. Shakespeare said it very well, there is no right or wrong, but thinking makes it so. Don't get caught up in right and wrong. That can become the cause of trying to be hard on yourself or be upset with yourself. Oh, I can't do it. It's hard. It's only hard because there's a part of you struggling with another part of you. So find out what is the most natural calling for you and do that. Be true to yourself. That will work better being true to yourself is what Krishna is calling your prescribed duty that is that place of authenticity that's that place of being who you are not who people want you to be but who you actually are you do it for you do it because that's what you need to do to have a better life okay thanks for asking and I really appreciate you being here You can always catch up on YouTube. I have all the recordings over there. Spiritual Wisdom channel, you'll find it there. Thank you for listening. For more information, you will find my website in the description below. Or you may go to LovingSoulfully.com to subscribe and download a free copy of my book.